In the 16th century, a very famous, very famous Christian reformer named Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, he said this about idols. The Ten Commandments start with a commandment against idolatry because the fundamental motivation behind law-breaking is idolatry. We never break the commandments without breaking the first one. Why do we fail to love or keep God's promises or live unselfishly? Now, of course, the general answer is because we are weak and sinful, but the specific answer is any actual circumstance is that there is something you feel you must have to be happy. Something that is... Uh, is that it? <laughs> Let me check my notes. Yes, it is. Something that you feel you must have, something that is more important to your heart than God himself. Now it's, we would not lie unless we first had made something, human approval, reputation, power over others, financial advantage, making those more important and valuable to our hearts than the grace and favor of God. The secret, Martin Luther and Tim Keller in his book, say the secret to change is to identify and dismantle. I love that word, not just remove, but dismantle the counterfeit gods of your heart. The Bible passage that we're going to study Stay with most of this message is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to that? If you don't have a Bible, we have black leather Bibles all over the place. Please count that as our gift to you. There's also our church app, Elevation Community Church, where we have a Bible app on there. And if not, you can read it on the screen. This is Paul, and he's writing to Timothy, his mentee, to then share with the churches and the Christians underneath Timothy's leadership. This is what Paul says. I have to be honest with you, when I read these words this week, my jaw really hit the ground because... Well, let's just read it. But understand this. This is important, he's saying. Don't miss it. That in the last days, the last days, there will come times of difficulty. What he's saying is it's going to be terrible. It's going to be as worse and as bad as you can imagine. So he's saying in the last days, this is what we're going to see. People will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, 
disobedient to parents. They didn't see much of that back then. In the last days, you will see this. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unpeaceable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Mm. For among them, oh, avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burden them with sins, and led astray by various passions. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Can we go back to the first part of that scripture, Will? I want you to focus. Look, look at these qualities, these characteristics, these traits. And Paul is saying when you see this to the full, you can know that the last days are at hand. Now, if you grew up in the church, I know in my church for probably hundreds of years now, people have been saying we're in the last days, we're in the last days, because there are signs that the Bible speaks of. But keep in mind that God's timeline is not our timeline. Second Peter says that a thousand years is like a day to our Lord. And a day is like a thousand years to our God. And then it says, don't think that God is just slow to bring about what He's bringing about. But He's being patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but to come to repentance and receive what His Son Jesus can give. Now look at these traits. Disobedient to their parents. That really sticks out to me. Because all of our kids in this community just absolutely respect their parents and obey everything that they say. <laughs> we live in a culture that in order to discipline your kids is sometimes even against the law. And we wonder why the Bible says they're going to be disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, heartless, unpeaceable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Do you realize what that does to God's heart? Because when he sees his children become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, he sees his son agonizing on the cross. Now here's the crazy thing that as I was studying 2 Timothy and I looked at some commentary and some research, do you know who Paul is prophesying about? At first when I read it, I just thought this is the world. This is the atheist. This is the agnostics. This is those 
who are anti-Christ, anti-Christians. That couldn't be farther from the truth. Paul is talking about people in the church. People who profess and proclaim to be followers of Christ, but are liars to the truth. Who have a form of godliness. The Bible says they've tasted the goodness of God. But they didn't let it change their hearts. Talk about a warning. Church, if we really indeed are in the last days, whether it's a hundred days, a hundred years, or a thousand more years, if we indeed are in the last days, we had better take a serious look at our hearts. If Jesus Christ has truly set us free, if He truly is the way and He is the only truth and He is the only life, and like I said before worship, if indeed the Holy Spirit lives in me and in you, don't you agree that we should look different? than anyone else proclaiming anything different? Jesus thinks that because he died for that. He didn't die for a form of godliness for us just to come to church and put on the, fir for, uh, the for form of a believer, a Christian, and sing the songs and nod our heads and take notes but to not be living for God at all. That's not what he died for. And I can't imagine how it grieves God's heart. Does it bug you? Does it bug you? When you hear people say they want nothing to do with Christianity and the church because of people. More than likely, they're talking about you. me that ticks me off because that's not the church that Jesus died to develop when people say that they don't want to go to church because they don't want to just deal with false artificial people pastors on the pulpit who are speaking one thing and doing and living a different way people who are backstabbing and gossip and clicks. They don't want anything to do with them and can you blame them? Because that's not church. That's a building and it's called religion. So what should the difference be in us? 
It's very simple, and it's one word, and many of you learned it in Sunday school. It's called Jesus. Jesus makes the difference. But the difference is made when Jesus becomes my Savior and my friend and my Lord, not just a mere name or a form of Christianity. And when you have a relationship with Jesus, there is a trickle-down effect of life change. If you have met someone who has truly encountered the love and grace of Jesus Christ and has welcomed Him in as Lord, you will see a change. They will look at things differently. Their priorities will look different than yours. Their heart will burn with passion for the things that burn Jesus' heart. You see, this change that I'm telling you about, where people do look different, by the way, that's how the world will know that you truly are a follower of Christ is by being different. And I'm not just saying unique, I'm saying different. Meaning you love with the love that Christ has given you. That's the difference. That is not at all a characteristic of the world. It never will be. And it never can be. It is only through This life change that I'm talking about is only through a sinless, blameless Savior named Jesus who is the way, the only way, the only truth that will never, ever, ever come back empty. And He is the only life that we can have when our bodies disintegrate into the ground. And His love and His sacrifice on the cross for you is the only truth that will ever set you free. But here is why we don't see this a lot in churches. And we see what we read in 2 Timothy 3 is because in order to receive that life that Jesus laid down, in order to receive something, I have to let go of what I'm holding on to. You follow? And in order to receive the life of freedom and wholeness and peace and salvation and redemption, we have to let go of our sinful selves. We have to let go of the idols that we have been pursuing. That's not Jesus. That's the only way. Is you have to lay down your life. Like the song we sang, I lay me down, I'm not my own. But I belong to Jesus who is my life. You have to lay it down in order to take His life on. So this is a reality check today. And as we wrap up this series, we're just going to look at two points. Two points. And I... I'm really going to try to speak to you personally 
Because if you allow God and His Holy Spirit to equip you through these two points, I believe that you are going to experience the love of Christ like you haven't in a long time. Number one is identifying your idols in your life. And number two is removing and replacing those idols with Christ Jesus. So, it all starts with identifying the idols that have crept in our hearts and taken residence and have driven us and controlled us in everything we do, even when we have a form of godliness and say we're a Christian because we go to church, attend a small group, and serve in a ministry, and oh, by the way, we give to the ministry as well. It's all about what is in your heart. The definition of an idol is the very thing, the very thing that you live for, that if it's removed, if it's lost, if it's taken away, it will lose your sense of almost living and having that sense of worth to keep going on. That's an idol. And that place was designed from the beginning of time for only God to dwell and fulfill. So I'm going to walk you through three categories. You can take notes. You can download this message later. I'm going to walk you through three categories of inventory to do to try to see where the idols are in your heart, your mind. The soul is the mind, the will, and the emotions where you have set up idols that are not Christ himself. So number one, let's go there. Our imagination Number one, it's not on the screen. Our imagination. So I'm going to ask you some questions here. First, a quote from Archbishop William Temple. You know what this says? He says, your religion, your religion is what you do in your solitude. In the quiet places, many of you don't have quiet places, that's your idol. In the quiet places of your life, your solitude, what you do with that time really shows who your God is. So where do your thoughts effortlessly go when there is nothing else demanding your attention? And again, I'm going to say a lot of you, especially in this culture, we say, I'm sorry, I don't have times where nothing is demanding my attention. That's an idol. Whatever is taking your time and demanding your attention where you can't even get solitude anymore is your idol, even if it's your children or your spouse. What are you daydreaming about? What occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? Is it career advancements? Is it one day I will be? I can't wait till one day. Is it your dream home, a dream car, a dream vacation? Your relationship with another person? Now before you tune me out, I'm not saying that these thoughts and daydreams are an indication of idolatry. But what I am saying is if you continually, the Bible says habitually, Think on those things, and that's what controls your mind, and that's what controls 
your time when you have nothing else to think about, then you probably are dealing with idols in your heart. So the question is, what do you habitually or continually think about to get joy, comfort, and peace in the privacy of your own heart? The answer to that question will reveal what is in the center of your life. Second category is how do we spend our money? Uh Uh-oh. This one hit me too, guys. This is a huge, fresh indicator of idols in our lives. Jesus said that where your treasure is, what you value and what you hold on to and what you invest in shows where your heart is. There's a quote on the screen. It says, your money flows most effortlessly toward your heart's greatest love. Just look at your checking account. Look at your credit card bills. I'm not trying to bring condemnation. I'm just trying to bring truth. So if the Lord is Phil Nelson's greatest love, If the Lord is my greatest love, I will naturally, or shall I say supernaturally, desire to invest my money in what is closest and dearest to my Lord's heart. And if you open up my checkbook and you don't see me giving to the ministry where God has placed me, and giving to the ministries that are reaching the community, and not sponsoring an orphan or taking or foster care or taking in someone who is hurting or reaching out to those who don't have anything. If my checkbook doesn't show any of that, that's going to really cause other people to say, is his God really the Lord? Because it sure looks like it's entertainment and vacations. Or Amazon. Our patterns of spending reveal our idols. Oh, God, speak to our hearts. The third category is we need to look at your most uncontrollable emotions. Look at your most uncontrollable emotions. What I mean by this, let me give you an illustration. Anyone like to fish? I sure do. I guess I'm the only one. Little tacket, Mr. Bass Pro here. Do you remember those those uh, fishing uh, fish finders <laughs> that they used to put on the rowboat? You know, and it would it would have like sensors, and it would go beneath the boat that you're sitting in, and it would go down to the depths of the body of water that you're in, and it will tell you if there's movement and fish. Some of them even showed the big size of the fish. We need to get some of those fish finders called idol finders in our lives. 
Because what we need to do is we need to go to the bottom of our hearts. To the most painful emotions. The most painful areas of our lives. Especially those that never seem to go away, never seem to lift, and they drive you to do things that you don't want to do. If it's anger, you need to ask the question, is there something here too important to me, something that I must have at all costs, that I am defending, and it is emotionally charging me up, and I'm focused on myself? What is that? Some of you live and are driven by fear. That's not of God. You need to ask, am I so scared and driven by fear because something in my life is being threatened that I think is a necessity to my life and to my living that really it may not be? That's what's producing the fear and the anxiety. I remember as a kid, I can't believe I'm sharing this with you, (laughs) on Christmas, I would hate to leave the house because we would at night go to look at Christmas uh, uh, decorations. I would hate to leave because I thought someone was going to rob our house and take all my gifts under the tree. (laughs) There's even times in my young faith where I thought Jesus was going to come back before Christmas morning. (laughs) You can laugh, it's funny. But where Phil's heart was, was set on the gifts. And I could not get past that. That's what I was living for. Jesus, at that point, wasn't the gift that kept on giving. If you're struggling with deep sadness or depression... You need to ask yourself this question. Is there something that has been violated in your life? Is there something that has been broken or even crushed that seems to pull the rug of significance and value right under your feet? Because that could be an idol that you're holding on to. We need to go deep down underneath the surface where 90% of the iceberg of issues and idols dwell. And these steps, these categories that I just led us through of identifying idols in our hearts are all about raising questions and asking God to search your heart. To see whether you serve God or an idol. Whether or not Christ is supreme in your heart or your idol is that God. According to Paul in 2 Timothy, we better be really really serious about keeping Christ first in our lives. You replace your idols with what you love most. We're going to go on to step number two, removing and replacing your idols. This is very important that Tim Keller really stresses in his book, Counterfeit Gods. Stay with me, I'm almost done. We need to begin to realize that idols cannot simply be removed they must be replaced 
If you only try to uproot them, they will grow back. But they can be subplanted. By what? More like by whom? God himself. It's all about replacing it with a living encounter with the Lord Almighty. You replace your idols with what you love most. And what you love most, that is what you will follow, what you will serve, and what you will worship. Colossians, one of my favorite books in the New Testament, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 5, says this, if you've then been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. Set your minds. It's where idols live. In our minds, in our will, in our emotions. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is, everyone say it together, This scripture here, I would really challenge you to read this afternoon. It looks like, in reality, in living form, it looks like this with two components. Setting your mind on the things above and being hidden in Christ looks like this. Living a life of rejoicing and living a life of repentance. Living a life of rejoicing and living a life of repentance. Rejoicing. What does that look like? Guys, this is, this is where, I cha- where I'm challenged. I'm working on it. I'm a work in progress. Jesus has been so faithful and good to me. But rejoicing doesn't come easy for me. But it will. <laughs> rejoicing is all about resting in Jesus of who he is and what he's done for me. Rejoicing is all about I'm daily soaking God in. Daily. Rejoicing looks like I'm worshiping God with a grateful heart for all that He's, all that he's done. It is then that Jesus becomes more incredible, more beautiful, more awesome than my, to my imagination, and far more attractive to my heart than any idol. That's when idols can be stripped, removed, and replaced. That is what will replace whatever idol that is in your heart. If you uproot the idol, but you fail to plant the love of Christ and rejoice in what He's done for you, guess what's going to grow back? It's not Twinkies. It's not peace and joy. It's going to be your idol. So we rejoice, we set our minds in Christ and who He is. And secondly, repentance. Rejoicing and repentance, by the way, have to go together. You can't have one without the other. Repentance without rejoicing will lead to despair. 
And rejoicing without repentance is absolutely shallow and will only provide inspiration and good feelings for a moment. Repentance is an attitude of the heart and an action of the mind to turn, to recalibrate your direction and walk away the other, uh, in opposite direction of where you were heading. But so often, especially with what 2 Timothy is talking about, people taking on the form of godliness but have no depth in relationship with Jesus, they usually repent out of fear of consequences. How many of you do that? I know I have. That I'm going to repent just because I know God may get me. And I know it's wrong. And even though I enjoy it, I better change or else God or something bad's going to happen. God's going to get me or something bad's going to happen, right? That's fear-based repentance. But what it really is is self-pity. We don't learn to hate sin for what it is. And when we do that, Sin does not lose its attractive power to our hearts. But, when we rejoice, hear me, when we rejoice over God's amazing sacrifice and His love, seeing what our sin cost Jesus on the cross to save us, we begin to learn to hate our sin because of what it does to Jesus. Think of a song I used to sing, does he still feel the nails every time I fail? And does he hear the crowd cry crucify again? Am I causing him pain that I know I've got to change? I never want to hurt him again. That's when we can fully repent. Think of someone you love so dearly and think, just think, if you were to do something so drastic and and so destructive that it caused them so much pain and anguish and it hurt them so deeply. And this person you loved more than you loved yourself. There's people in my life, I tell you what, I hurt Lauren once. I've heard her more than once, but I heard her very deeply one time. And I saw the tears in her eyes, and I knew I'm never going to do that again. Never going to do that again. Because I saw the pain it caused. And so repentance comes out of understanding what Jesus did for you. And so often we repent because we think that our sin is condemned, which it is, but we have to understand what the Bible says in Romans 4, that His loving kindness leads us to repentance. It's not His wrath. It's His loving kindness that leads us to repentance. It's His goodness. It's His love. That's why mere obedience in the Christian faith is not enough. It's just action. It's religious activity. 
But when it's a relationship built on love and faithfulness, you don't want to break your Savior's heart. You don't want to do anything that is going to cause Him pain and damage His name. As the band comes up, I want to just leave you with two scriptures. And they're found in 1 John chapter 2. Verse 3 through 6. It says this. Please listen. And by this we know that we have come to know. Come to know a relationship with Jesus, not a religion. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. What is His commandments? Love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and love people as I have loved you. Whoever says I know Him, but doesn't follow that, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. The song that the band did right before the message is a song that Bill Tackett wrote along with the help of his band members. And it is so fitting because if you want to get rid of your idols, you need to get back to understand that Jesus is all that you will ever need and that his loving kindness is what draws you back to his heart. It says, all my fountains are in you we will taste and see that you are good. Rejoicing. We will feast upon your faithfulness. And forever, we will be satisfied in you. I know God is stirring in your hearts. And I have sensed God telling me to do something all week the Sunday service. If we're truly wanting to get back to the main thing, which is Jesus, the only one who can bring life change, then we truly need to get on our knees and repent of seeking other things other than God. And I'm going to ask you right where you're at, right where you're at, to just stand up, turn around, and go on your knees if you're physically able. So let's do that right now. Stand up, turn around, and let's get on our knees, church. Let us realize what we've done. We haven't just pursued the pleasures of this world, we've nailed Jesus to the cross. And the pain and the grief that the Father's heart feels every time we say, Jesus, you're not enough. 
I want something else. Father, forgive me. Forgive me for wanting anything else but you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, right now across this room, God, that people would begin to open their eyes to your loving kindness and your amazing grace that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. God, I don't want to be a church called Elevation Community Church, part of the body of Christ that is just going through the movements and filled with fake people who are in the form of godliness, but they've missed it. They've missed it. God, we don't want that. We want you. We want you. Even though we can't understand everything that you are, and all your goodness in our life, we want you. We're asking you to show us more of your amazing love. We want you, God. No one else in history has ever laid down their life for us. You took your body as an offering. And you were brutally beaten and scarred beyond recognition and every whiplash had my name all over it and as you were crucified on the cross your blood poured out and then if that hadn't been worse your amazing holy heavenly father had to turn his face from you because of me. Father, search our hearts in this moment. Whatever, God, we know. We know. We know what we run after. We know what ch we chase after. We know what tempts our hearts. And God, we want to remove them and replace them with Your Holy Spirit and your love, and your joy, and your peace, and your goodness, and your mercy. Right now, would you do that, Father? We want to be known for the difference in our lives to where we can say, Jesus is the center of my heart. He controls my heart. The love of Christ drives me in everything I do. Would you like to know Him? And God, as we worship in a moment, and the communion elements are passed out, and as we hold the bread and the cup in our hands, because we're going to take it together, Father, may we remember the main thing. It's You, it's You, it's You. You are the King of our hearts. And we come back to you today. And every time we turn the different direction, would you stop us in our path and show us your cross? That we may turn back and run back to you and put you in the place of our hearts that only you deserve. In Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen.